0: May the Lord's spirit be upon my lips and in each and every one of our hearts, amen. It's a special privilege to come here and visit and celebrate at All Souls. Uh, I preached here once before, probably 15 years ago. And in fact, this altar was a little further forward. I remember that. And I see that you've done some rearranging. One of the things I appreciate about this congregation is its style of worship. It's yours. There are others that worship in a similar way with similar arrangements. But the particular way in which you worship God is something to be honored. And it's special for me because I appreciate, more than you can imagine, the diversity of worship in the Anglican communion. I've traveled all over the world and worshiped in Anglican churches in many other countries. And it differs greatly. Uh, I've been to uh, Anglo-Catholic High Church in London, St. James. They sing the gospel. I'd never heard that. But when I heard it, I thought, this is so extraordinarily beautiful. I'm not sure I'd wanna do this every Sunday, but wow, is this wonderful. I've been in worship in Uganda and saw the warmth and joy in the worship there. I've been in Nigerian church and the offering is one of the central parts of the service. And the basket for the offering is kept up at the front, and the congregation dances to bring their offering and put them down. I've worshipped in Paris, France, with a 1662 English prayer book, probably the most common one used around the world. In all of these cases, these were Anglicans who had found a way to bless the heart of God. And they differed. And it was a good thing. One of the most interesting places where I have worshiped is Christ Church in the old city of Jerusalem. A place, uh, the rector David Pelagi is a long time friend. Uh, The congregation is one I have visited over and over. The worship there is largely in Hebrew for one service in English for another. They have simultaneous translation for visitors from around the world in up to 15 languages. It's an extraordinary place. And what you may not know about its history is this. The oldest mission to the Jewish people is the church's mission among the Jewish people founded in London in 1809, probably 150 years before Jews for Jesus was founded. And it was founded by Anglican clergy and lay people who, reading the scriptures and reading the prophets, believed that Israel would be restored by God, that it would live again. And at that time, nobody believed that. For them, Israel was history and ancient history. It wasn't going to happen again. It just wasn't. But these believers believed the prophecies and believed the scripture. And they said, we need to go and make a way. And so they sent a Jewish bishop, Solomon, to Israel to plant a church there, which he did. He planted Christ's church. He died before its completion, but he started the work there and they sent doctors and nurses to care for the Jewish people who were the most marginalized of society at the time. All of Israel, all of that area was under the Ottoman Empire, ruled from Turkey, and the Jews were considered the worst of the worst. Disregarded couldn't be hired just on the very edges of society. And so CMJ, did not just establish a church there, but they looked at the plight of the Jews in Israel and said we need to help lift them economically, take them away from the margins. And so they created factories there to manufacture olive wood, statues, crosses, creches, manger scenes, all of those olive wood things that many of us have in our homes because olive wood at the time was just used for fire. It was considered unsuitable for building, and so it was just scrap. And so they cleverly turned the scrap that nobody wanted into an industry and used it to employ the Jewish people there who were so marginalized. There's a lot more to that history which I'm not going to go through, but I will tell you this. If you go and read the history, you will see that the Anglican Church and that mission is foundational to the reestablishment of the state of Israel in more ways than you can imagine. Today, if you go to Israel and visit Christ church, what you'll find is, especially at Christmas time, it is flooded by Israelis, Jewish Israelis, who come there, 20,000 in a typical December, because they want to see what Jewish people who are Christians look like. And how they worship. It's, a, it's almost a mystery to them. How can you be a Jew and be a Christian? And so they come there to see them. And Christ Church, both with the church and a museum they have there and a cafe and housing, welcomes them and teaches them about Jews who are Christians, including Hmm, Jesus and the apostles and the early church, all Jewish. That mission continues. If you've not been to Israel, when you go, make it a point to go there. And if you haven't been, make it a point to go. It's a life-changing experience. And I will tell you this, and I don't want to really divert any of this to a political side, but I will say this, that much of what you hear on the news about Israel, when you go there, you discover that it's not quite what it is that you've been led to believe. It's a worthwhile trip to have first-hand experience of what it's like there. So my congregation is called New Jerusalem House of Prayer. We're currently in Carroll Stream, if you know where the Wheaton Christian Center is, at Schmali and North Avenue. Uh, We actually, our sanctuary is in the back of that building. There's a wonderful story about how those two congregations came to be close friends. I won't share that right now, but that's our congregation. We started out as Resurrection Episcopal Church in West Chicago on Route 59. The same origins as the big Resurrection church here in Wheaton. But our resurrection ultimately became what's now New Jerusalem House of Prayer. This happened in in a series of events which I think you will find meaningful. Something to take home. The first is this. When I was in seminary, it was at Church Divinity School of the Pacific in Berkeley. It's the Episcopal Seminary in Berkeley California and the year that I was to study Old Testament the regular Old Testament professor couldn't teach the course because he had become the acting Dean and so I had to go to another one of the seminaries there are nine in what's called the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley I had to go to another seminary to study Old Testament year-long course. Now I can tell you that when I went there, I had a relatively common Christian view of the Old Testament. Mm, I had read parts of it. Uh, I knew that it was sort of the Bible that Jesus and the disciples read. Uh, But what I believed was the Christian scripture, really primarily, it's the New Testament. And much of the Old Testament is now history, and and maybe interesting in that regard, but it's not foundational to what we believe. It's just sort of where we were, but it's not where we are now. The picture I had in my head was uh, like the box up in your attic that's got all the things that your grandparents collected, and it's sort of closed up and dusty, and someday you're going to go up there and look at it, but, you know, that day doesn't come. And then I began this course in Old Testament taught by a professor named Dwayne Christensen. What I didn't know when I signed up for the course or when I got there to study under him is that he was regarded as one of the top scholars of the Old Testament worldwide by both Christians and Jews. He was one of those few who was highly regarded now, lest you think this was going to be an academic course, which I did, thought it was going to be something I had to do to get my degree. From the very first day, he opened up the scriptures to us, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and he showed us the face of God. It was as if I'd opened that box up in the attic, looking for old things, looked down inside it, and the face of God was looking back at me. And we called it the white knuckle course because we held onto our desks like this every time we went there because it was that frightening and awe-inspiring. And we couldn't believe what we were learning. It so exceeded every idea that every one of us had about what the Old Testament was about. And I realized then just in a beginning way there's something really important here that we've missed. And I really need to find out what it is. Some years later, I happened to attend uh, an Orthodox Jewish congregation out in Aurora. I wanted to see what their liturgy and their service was like. And when the service was over, the rabbi came down I was a new face for him and I introduced myself and I said, I'm an Anglican priest. And he said, really? I love your prayer book. And I said, wow, we got it from you. (laughs) And he said, I knew that, but I didn't want to say it. (laughs) Well, if you look at the work that Cranmer did in producing the Book of Common Prayer, he used the breviaries of the Roman Catholic Church and the Siddurim, the prayer books of the Jewish synagogue. And that was the guide that he used in creating our book of common prayer. We realized that there was something that we had missed and so we began studying to try to find out what had been ignored or forgotten. And ultimately, it happened that we became New Jerusalem House of Prayer, the first Anglican Messianic congregation in the United States. And as far as I know, the second one in the world. The first one is Christ Church, Jerusalem. If you go into Christ Church and you see the altar up in front, It has words on the front of it written in Hebrew. Which say, this do in remembrance of me. The Ten Commandments are displayed up at the back in Hebrew. You walk in there and you say to yourself, this is a Jewish place. And it is. That's what we're from. Those are our roots. We're a branch grafted in. So as we began studying to try to find out what is it that we have somehow lost or forgotten, there were so many things. And I'm going to give just a couple of examples to maybe whet your appetite. And if you're interested in learning more, if you go to our... Uh, website newjerusalem.net there are videos there there's an eight week course in the Jewish roots of the New Testament there are articles that we have written there are links to other places to be clear I'm not inviting anybody to come and be a part of us I think what you guys are doing here is wonderful and I celebrate it bloom where you're planted but there are some resources that might be found helpful and they can be found there. Let me share just a couple of examples of what we have lost or forgotten. You may have heard about the little booths that appear all over Skokie and Glenview and all over Israel just a few weeks ago. It's the celebration of the feast of Sukkot. A is a rough, shelter which was built. God commanded the Jews to do that for seven days every year to remember their time in the wilderness. It even has to be open somewhat at the top. So if it rains, you actually get wet, as if you were in the wilderness. And you are to invite guests there to eat with you, and you sleep there. In fact, there's a wonderful movie called Ushpizen. U-S-H-P-I-Z-I-N, uh, about a poor Jewish couple in Meir Sharim, that's the Orthodox section of Jerusalem, who don't have the money to build a sukkah one year. And it follows all of their adventures, and it, it's just wonderful. And if you haven't ever seen it, rent it or buy it or whatever, enjoy it, and you'll understand a lot about Sukkot and why it is such an important celebration for Jews worldwide. Another one is this. Jesus celebrated what we call Eucharist, Thanksgiving, Passover with his disciples. There's the occasional Christian theologian, by the way, who will say, well, it wasn't really Passover. It was a unique Last Supper that Jesus did just with his disciples. Read Matthew 26. It'll dispel that error. So Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples, is murdered the following afternoon, what we call Good Friday, is buried before sunset, that's the Jewish law, is in the grave all of Shabbat, that's Saturday, and then rises from the dead on Sunday, the first fruit from the dead, that's what we call him, the first fruit from the dead. Well, you know what the Sunday after Passover is called by Jews? It's the celebration of first fruits. Celebrating the barley harvest. First fruits. Now, why did I not know that when I was in Sunday school? It's not a coincidence. Well, God does coincidences in that he makes things coincide, but it's not accidental. The festival of first fruits, every Sunday after Passover, that's what Jews celebrate. This would not have been lost on his disciples or followers. And then there's another holiday which comes about 50 days later, which we call Pentecost. It's the birth of the church. When the Holy Spirit falls on perhaps 140 followers of Jesus in the upper room. The birth of the church, the first fruits of the gospel, if you would. Well, that's a Jewish holiday called Shavuot. And do you know what it celebrates? First fruits of the wheat harvest. And so on the two celebrations of Jewish feasts, which by the way God commands be celebrated every year forever, on those two feasts are the resurrection of the dead of Jesus, the first fruit from the dead, and the resurrection from the dead of his followers into new life on Pentecost, the first fruit of the gospel. So there's much going on that we are unaware of but which really is meaningful and gives depth to what it is that we believe. The way that Jews study the scriptures is in conjunction with something called the Talmud. Who's ever heard of the Talmud? Wonderful. Most of us have heard the word we don't know what it is when we hear Christian commentators often talking about Jews and what they do. They say, yeah, well, you know, it's just they're under law and they've got this oral law they invented and they don't really pay attention to what's in the, all sorts of comments which are fundamentally mistaken. The Talmud is a commentary on scripture and a commentary on comments on scripture. Uh, It consists of about 25 volumes, about that wide. Each volume is this tall and that wide, about that thick in Hebrew. And in the center of each page is a passage of scripture, or in some cases, a comment on scripture. And surrounding it are about a dozen different perspectives on what that central passage means, interpretations, if you would. What we would call case law. These are ways of explaining how this particular commandment is applied. And when you study this, you attend what's called yeshiva. In yeshiva you are assigned a partner to study with. The two of you together are called havarim, which can either mean lovers or best friends and the Rosh who is the head of the yeshiva comes and says today you're going to take Rashi and you're going to take this other commentator from the page and then you have to argue Rashi your partner argues the other you go at it hammer and tong no personal attack absolutely prohibited but you argue as vigorously as you can For the argument that you're reading there from Rashi or or the other. Rashi's the most famous. Or a couple of others. And then after a period of time, the Rosh comes back over to where you are and says, change sides. And then you have to argue for what you were just arguing against. Now, think about what this process accomplishes. It gives you nuances of interpretation rather than saying this guy's right and this one's wrong and we can't have anything to do with each other because of that, that sort of dialectic division, that bifurcation that so often happens in theological discussions. You're not allowed to do that. Not only that, you argue a point which you disagreed with just a moment ago. And the principle of this argument is this. This is quite extraordinary. They believe that if the argument is intense enough, it opens up a space for the Holy Spirit to come in and enlighten both of their minds. Ruach HaKodesh, it's called in Hebrew, but it's the Holy Spirit. And they believe that then they can begin to understand in greater depth what it is that God was saying where he said it. And I've been to Yeshiva in Mea Sharim in the Orthodox section of Jerusalem and watched this take place. I have friends who are Orthodox Jews living in Israel. I've stayed in Orthodox communities there. And while I hope for the day when the Orthodox realize who Mashiach is, who Messiah is, I respect the intensity of their desire to understand God and be obedient to his will. And in fact, I'll share just briefly this. I have a friend, Orthodox Jew, yeshiva-educated and trained. Uh, His wife is the daughter of a good friend of mine, also a Jew. And he and I were in uh, Bet Shemesh, Orthodox village, And we were talking about Messiah. And you may not know this, but in the Orthodox community, and in fact in much of the Jewish community worldwide, there is an intense hunger for Messiah to come. You can go on YouTube and find people dancing in the streets, shouting, we want Mashiach, we want Messiah, we want Messiah. So this is a, a very intense desire in that community. And so I'm, Talking with my friend, we're talking about Messiah back and forth. I'm talking about Yeshua, Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, about Messiah. And, and he said, the bottom line for me is this. We want Messiah. We want Messiah now. And I said, what if Messiah comes and it's Yeshua. And he just stopped. For the longest time you could see the struggle going on in his face. And then he finally said, that would be okay, just so long as Messiah comes. So there is an intense hunger in the Jewish community a community about which we know almost nothing. So not only do I believe that it's valuable to dig deep into this more than we traditionally have for our own edification, but also to make us aware of the hunger for Messiah which is there among the Jewish people and try to find a way to have conversation Which is not ignorant and and not disrespectful. The genius of yeshiva is that it allows a diversity of insights on a particular passage of scripture, a particular teaching of Jesus, without disfellowshipping those who have a different view. Now, to be clear, I know that there's such a thing as heresy. I'm really clear about that. There are ways you can go off the rails in horribly. And one of the jobs of our teachers and pastors and priests is to help us make sure we don't go off the rails horribly. But at the same time, there is real benefit in our learning to discuss things in an intense way without personal attack and without getting angry with each other because we disagree. And it's quite possible that the view that that person has with which I disagree, if I listen intensely, there might be a word in that. There might be an enlightenment in that that I need. And equally for him or her, as I share to the best of my ability, my understanding. And truth be told, I think if we do that, the Holy Spirit comes and enlightens both of our minds. Amen.